This is Soundstage founder Doug Schneider. You're listening to the Soundstage Audiophile Podcast, your semi-regular deep dive into news, facts, opinions, and anecdotes about everything that really matters in the world of high-performance audio. Hosts Brent Butterworth and Dennis Berger have more than five decades worth of audio product testing experience and a few hours of podcasting experience as well. Now, here's Brent and Dennis. I'm Brent Butterworth, esteemed editor of the Soundstage Solo website. Hi, I'm Dennis Berger, not-so-esteemed editor of Soundstage Access. Uh, we both write for Soundstage, which is a collection of nine microsites that cover all sorts of audio topics, from very high-end to uh, headphones to uh, connected audio and everything in between. I, ho- I, I have to say, I hold you in, in esteem, and the only reason you're <laughs> less esteemed than me is just because I, you know, I've had an extra 10 years or so to collect more esteem. There's a lot of people who don't hold me in much esteem. So okay. let's stop talking about me and talk about audio. Brent. Nobody I hold in high esteem does not hold you in high esteem. Oh, okay. Well, so. that's, that's reassuring. <laughs> anyway, we've got another, uh, what I hope is an interesting episode for everybody this week. We've got three topics we're going to dig into, starting with an article by our own Diego Astan called doing our due diligence room gain revisit. What do you want to dig into this week, Brent? I would like to talk about an article that is by, it's a column by Stereophile editor Jim Austin in the new edition of Stereophile and also on their website. And it's called On Live Music. And he is uh, philosophizing about whether or not we should consider live music to be the ultimate musical experience and the reference to which other experiences should be compared, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think we have one more topic. Is that right? We do. I think we're starting a bit of a trend here that we're going to dig into another audio show report. Uh, this time it is Doug's show report from Montreal Audio Fest 2022. Uh, some pretty cool products there. And I think you and I both have like a product each that we're sort of intrigued by. I want to discuss and I think wish we could have heard ourselves. Um, but yeah, we'll dig into that. Excellent. Let's, uh, let's start with this room gain revisited thing really quick. Okay. Because I I think this is a really, really interesting article. So we've mentioned Diego Estan several times uh, Mm -hmm. on the podcast before. Diego does um, all of my measurements for Soundstage Access, and he does a lot of measurements across the Soundstage network. But he did a product review himself of the Stenheim Alumine 2 loudspeakers. Mm -hmm. And by the way, we should say these are stand mount speakers, what most people would refer to as bookshelf speakers. They're not large tower speakers. They're small speakers with with uh, a mid-bass driver, a tweeter, and a, f- and a front-firing port. But Diego's conclusion was, yeah, these things sound amazing. And in fact, is if I add a subwoofer to the equation, some of the best sound I've ever heard in my room. But on their own, they don't have a lot of bass. Mm-hmm. And um, I believe either the manufacturer or the distributor of the speakers got in touch with him after the review was published and said, well, hey, buddy, you know, I mean, we appreciate the review, but the way you're using these things sort of out into the room where your normal focals would go, you're not using these speakers as designed. So in an interesting move, Doug and Diego decided to revisit these speakers. They called the article Doing Our Due Diligence. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, Diego tried them out as they were intended to be used and sort of detailed his findings. I just thought it was a really neat article because you don't see things of this sort very often in, in our, in our yeah. industry. You don't see people going, hey, you know, I said what I said, but the manufacturer thought maybe I should have said it different. So we're going to try this again. We're going to we're going to see 
if what they're saying has validity, we're going to retest it. We're going to do measurements. I just thought it was pretty neat. What did you think about it? I, I think he did a great job. It's, um, you know, the, the fact that he did, he actually tested four different speaker positions here and, and he ran measurements and listened to them. And he really kind of came to some really uh, solid conclusions about these speakers and how they're designed. And I don't, you know, I, I think we should mention that speakers by and large, depending on how they're designed, but by and large, speakers sound better when they're out in the room a little bit, like a two or three feet out into the room. They sound a lot more open and more enveloping. Um, but of course, the further you move them away from the walls, the less bass they're going to have. So mm -hmm. sometimes, you know, I, I've, I've had a lot of manufacturers bring their speakers to me for testing. And one of the rituals they usually go through is they move it back and forth relative to the wall behind the speakers to get like just the right bass balance in the listening chair. And mm -hmm. so, but with a speaker like this, you don't have that option you don't have the option as much option to tune the bass because you know if look if you take a big pair of tower speakers right and you shove them back up against the walls they're probably going to sound too bassy mm -hmm. and then you move them out until the bass is right where you want it it's it's actually great it's kind of like having a bass control on your speakers even though it's all done in the you know crunchy granola uh you know analog kind of way and <laughs> um, but with these kind of speakers with these smaller speakers you know you know you have to shove them up kind of pretty close to the wall to really get them to work right so you have a lot less tuning capacity but still granted if you have a small place or you don't want to have your speaker sitting out in the room that's a, a good thing and i think it's good that the, why not have speakers that are designed in different ways you know what's interesting is i just did um i did an interview with the guys at paradigm because uh -huh. they a few years ago they introduced the a new monitor line uh, anybody who knows sort of paradigm speakers going back ages monitor has always been their very affordable line their high value you know high performance low price line and they introduced a new monitor se line uh maybe 20 18 2018 i think and um and there were like four speakers in it there were there were two towers there was a center channel and there was a bookshelf both of the tower speakers were really small and just uh last year they introduced a new halo model the 8000 mm -hmm. f which is a big boy i just finished reviewing it to be honest with you it was way too big for my two channel room i had to move it into my my home theater system just to really appreciate it but what's what's interesting was when i was talking to the guys at Paradigm about it. I don't think this part ended up in my interview. I think I, this got sort of edited out, but they were telling me like when we originally designed this new monitor line, we had Europe in mind or we had the international mm -hmm. market in mind. And they, you know, there's a tendency toward much smaller rooms and much smaller spaces. And that's why we didn't have a really large speaker in this lineup. And we didn't really think this line was going to appeal to North America. And then we came yeah. out with it and North American reps went, holy crap, this is amazing. But like, you don't have an American speaker in here. <laughs> like, We need a big boy. Yeah. We need a big speaker that's really going to fill a large room. And so that sort of speaks to the different priorities that have to go into designing a speaker for different markets because of room sizes, because of construction, because of you know wall materials and things like that. So it's really interesting. I just thought that tied into this. And, and it's a neat perspective that we don't talk about much. And I don't think mm -hmm. I really put much thought into until very recently. <laughs> You know, is a speaker designed for North America, right? For, I don't know, a consumer in France is a speaker designed for, you know, a small French apartment, right? For somebody in Utah, there are general rules that apply, but 
I think once you, I think, you know, there, there is room for a diversity and there's room for these very specific applications that, you know, apply more in one place than the other. What do you think? I, I agree with you. Um, what, what has happened in the industry for decades is that some people have been convinced that you need to design speakers for certain markets and make them sound different for certain markets. Um, which is false. I mean, it's actually been disproven. You know, Harman did a big study on it and got people from all around the world. And by and large, they agreed on what was good. But um, in this case, you're designing for the realities, of the physical realities of that market. And I think it's really smart to do that. And, you know, certainly if you're going to have uh, a speaker for the American market, that's going to have a, you know, a four inch woofer, that's going to be kind of like a, like an LS35A kind of thing. You'd have to voice it. You know, you could have, you could sell that speaker in both markets, but you have to voice it a little different, I think, for the European market, because it's got the LS35A has a, that's a little tiny British speaker that's been around for, I don't know, 30 or 40 years. And, um, it's got a bass boost in it to sort of overcome the fact that it's such a little speaker. Whereas if you had that in Europe and you put it up against the wall, it's going to uh, probably have too much bass. So mm-hmm. now it's small enough to where people in Europe can pull it out from the wall and it's fine. But um, I, I just I think it's really good that they're doing this, and I think it's just it's just another interesting thing that you know people should be aware of. I mean, obviously, you're not going to have this problem when you go buy speakers from your average American dealer, or you go buy mm-hmm. some of the big name speakers, you know, the Rebels and and B and Ws and and Focals and stuff like that. The sort of big mainstream speakers from manufacturers that have a big presence in the American market, they have already thought this through. You don't have to worry about it. But with a lot of more boutique manufacturers like Stenheim, which is focused mostly on the European market, then you're going to have to think about that. It's just a good thing to be cognizant of it, I think. Yeah. Another thing that came up in my interview with the guys from Paradigm was how they are sort of responding to the way room design has changed. And, And the fact that, you know, 20, 30 years ago, there was a tendency toward more soft furnishings, whereas more recently, new home construction, it's all hard surfaces, you know, and it's and they, they sort of talked about the way that that has led to the development of their new waveguide. And what they're trying to do is control the directivity of the of the uh, the speaker more. Um, but it was a really interesting discussion. And one of the things that they brought up was that they are using a lot of data from Anthem Room Correction mm-hmm. to sort of not necessarily drive that um, development, but definitely to inform that development because they've got a lot of times people will measure their rooms with Anthem Room Correction and they'll send the measurements to to the guys at Paradigm Anthem to say, hey, what should I do here? Where should I be setting my max filter frequency? What should I be doing with room gain? Things like that. Yeah. So they have literally thousands and thousands of examples of how actual rooms measure and how speakers are measuring in the wild. And they're using that to account for this change in room design that has happened over the past few decades. I thought that yeah, was really interesting. I think so too. And the audio industry, speaker industry is is somewhat at the mercy of design trends. Because you, you may remember when you and I both started Home Entertainment Magazine back 20 years ago, the real trend back then, and we were covering a lot of uh, you know big fancy custom installations and all that. The big trend back then was quote unquote over, overstuffed furniture. And so you had this furniture that looked like these just giant pillows um, usually in some horrific, like beige color. And it was just really awful looking stuff, in my personal opinion. But <laughs> yeah. that's what was going on. So I had to write about it, and I kept my mouth shut. But however, 
that is not the trend now. And so to their to to Paradigm's point, rooms are less absorptive on average now. And another thing to think about is everyone's going to wood floors now and no one wants yeah. uh, wall-to-wall carpet anymore. So people now have a wood floor with a carpet that's probably going to have that may not have a pad. That's probably going to be less thick than your nice soft carpet was. And that's going to change the sound too. So it's... It's really, you know, speaker manufacturers do have to to stay abreast of these trends to to some extent. Yeah. Anyway, the the, the main thing is, I th- I just want to send people to this article and have them read it. So go to soundstagehifi.com and check it out. Um, there's a lot of cool measurements here. There's a lot of in-depth comparisons between the different setups. Although <laughs> I think what's interesting is in the end, Diego sort of ends up right back where he started, in that. These are amazing speakers if you pair them with a subwoofer or two, which I think that's kind of the right answer for most people anyway. I'm becoming way more of an evangelist for 2.1, and you've been there for a long time, I think. I've I've been there for, yeah, kind of almost forever. So Yeah. Anyway, do we uh, want to take a break and move on to the next topic? Let's let's take a break and hear some delightful music from one of our favorite artists. Probably me. (laughs) Probably you. All right. We'll see you on the other side. I'm Dennis Berger, and I'm joined by Brent Butterworth. (laughs) So what are we talking about this segment, Brent? I would like to discuss an article, a column that I read in Stereophile Magazine, um, one of the leading journals of high-end audio in print. And um, the article is by Jim Austin, who's their editor-in-chief, and it's called On Live Music. And it's Honestly, I think it's going to be kind of a controversial article because he kind of, uh, he contradicts a lot of the sort of, uh, what's the word? General wisdom, conventional wisdom, common wisdom, uh, fake wisdom, whatever you want to call it. Articles conventional, of faith. Whatever. Whatever. <laughs> he contradicts <laughs> much of what you read on in some audiophile things. And um, he, he so he talks about so I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm going to I'll read his paragraph. I'll spoiler alert. Um, I'll read his opening paragraph. There's a notion among audiophiles that we must be regular consumers of live music, especially live acoustic music. It's the only way the thinking goes to calibrate our ears to the sound we should all be aspiring to at home. And then he points out some flaws in the logic of this, how, you know, recorded, you know, recordings change the sounds, you know, the recording process and all that changes the sound so much that it's not necessarily a good direct comparison with live. And then, of course, um, you know, and and that's even on a live recording, of course, when you're doing multi-track studio recordings, which is most of what we listen to, live is just sort of silly um, as a a reference for, for what that is. And then he kind of, as all of us writers have done, um, you know, he's infuriated at the <laughs> at a performance he saw at Carnegie Hall of a Russian pianist who apparently the guy was having a bad day and he, um, 
you know, he like came out and started playing before the applause had died down. And then he, you know, left the stage immediately and kind of did the same thing again. And and Jim Austin talked about how, you know, the sound was good, but it wasn't as good as what he hears at home on his system. And, you know, he paid more than $100 for that privilege of hearing that. Mm -hmm. So I think that, uh, and you know, and then a cell phone went off in the hall, which he kind of, you know, talks about that. And the guy got all mad about that and he let it throw him off. And, um, I just got to say us jazz musicians would never let that throw us off because we're used to that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're used to being ignored. (laughs) We're used to being ignored. Yes. So, uh, Maybe not Keith Jarrett, but all the rest of us. But I think he really makes a good, I think he makes a couple of great points here. And that's that live is not necessarily a good reference. And I think it was probably Harry Pearson, the founder of Absolute Sound, that came up with that. You know, that the Absolute Sound is the sound of live music. Yeah, we talked about yeah, this. Yeah, we've talked about yeah, it Yeah, we lot. talked about this in the first episode. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah. That was a few weeks ago. And at your age, you know. I know. I'm 60, so I'm forgetting almost everything. <laughs> Who are you? <laughs> anyway, so, but I, I really agree with a, a lot of that. I mean, yes, he's using the article as an excuse to rant about this concert that he's mad about. And look, like I said, all of us have done that. Every professional writer has done that mm. at some point and indulged himself. But he's really, I yeah. think he's really right. And I'm a, I'm a little bit of two minds about it because I think that, yeah, the live experience is very different. And, you know, frankly, I would much rather go see jazz or classical performed live. And I would rather hear rock as a recording because hmm. with jazz and classical, I, you know, I think that the, you know, with jazz, you're improvising uh, ideally. So, you know, there's, there's a kind of a high bar there with classical, you're performing stuff that's just so difficult that it's just mind blowing that people can pull this off. If you're, if you're a rock band, let's say you're Kiss, it's not exactly, you know, a whole lot of drama about whether, you know, what you're going to do. You're going to play the same set every night. You could be Beyonce also. You're going to play the same set every night. It's going to sound basically pretty much the same in every venue. There's nothing special about that. It's all coming through a PA system and it's all phony anyway. So that sort of the live experience, and that's the live experience most people get when they go to concerts, is just pointless as a, as a reference. Now, I do have to say, though, you can go to your local uh, college that has a music school and go see classical shows for free, and usually in a small mm-hmm. hall where it sounds really good. And you know, you can really get an idea for what those instruments sound like. Now, should you go back and listen to your system and go, oh, I judge this system to be such and such because this sounds like what I heard, or it doesn't sound like what I heard, forgetting that you know, every, you know, different violins and different trumpets and different drums all sound different. You can't, you can't go listen to some performance in a small hall and then somehow translate that into a big orchestral performance that was recorded at Carnegie or somewhere like that. Right. And also, I mean, the thing I think I really agree with Jim the most on is that, well, okay, maybe you do know what a cymbal actually sounds like. But by the time that has gone through whatever recording studio it's in, gone mm-hmm. through the board, been mixed and mastered, at that point, you've lost your connection with what that original sound impulse was, right? Yeah. So for me, it's it's most of what I listen to is, you're going to joke on me for this, but most of the live recordings that I listen to are Grateful Dead bootlegs. 
most of the other music that I listen to is studio recordings. Mm -hmm. And there's only the most tenuous connection between the sound of those and probably the sound that was coming out of the instruments in the recording studio. So yeah, it just seems to me to be, I don't know, again, it's, it's a silly standard. Um, but those Grateful Dead, now I got to point out though, those Grateful Dead recordings mm -hmm. are, are, if they're bootlegs, they're made by people. Don't they have like a little pen where they put those people in, in the Grateful Dead concert? You know, a lot of times the board recordings were actually available. So one oh, of the common okay. things, and a lot of my favorite bootlegs is what they'll do is called a matrix recording. Mm -hmm. So they will take the board recording and they will mix that with the 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 sort of bootleg pin recording. So ah. you get a combination of the board and the actual in-room sound. And I don't know, it, 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 it leads to a unique sound experience, but some yeah. of my favorite Grateful Dead bootlegs are like that. They're called matrixes and huh. they are, well, I guess they would be called matrices. They're matrix recordings, yeah. but well, that's, a, that's, yeah. A, you know, that's, that's common for like a, like a, I think most live rock recordings are done with a board feed, you know, off of the mixing board and then with mm -hmm. a few live microphones out in the hall, and then they just mix it all together to sound like whatever they want it to sound like. So that's, mm -hmm. yeah, but those are, so the Grateful Dead recordings, live recordings that you're listening to, I think are not all that processed, right? No, not at all. Not a little bit. Yeah, I mean, except for during the sort of wall of sound era, you know, back when they had the the gigantic wall of sound, I guess this yeah. oh man, I'm going to, I'm going to say this wrong and I'm going to kill myself for it. I think it was around the 1974 era mm -hmm. when they just had that gigantic wall of speakers behind yeah. them, all driven by Macintosh. At the time they were using um, microphones actually that were noise canceling microphones and they would have their, their mouths like right up in the mics. And so yeah. what, what those mics would do was pick up the sound of their vocals but like cancel out the sound of the stack coming from behind them so those recordings sound very different from other eras of recordings but and those you know had processing built in by virtue of the fact that there was processing in the signal chain before it left the speakers sure so, sure um, but yeah i mean you know you can i don't know somebody who's really into the grateful dead like i am you can hear 15 seconds of a recording even if you're not familiar with a recording you kind of know what era it's coming from just because of how much they were obsessed with sound and experimenting with sound all the way to the end so. Mm -hmm. But but I, I just basically think that I you know there's a lot of people that say oh you don't appreciate music unless you listen to it this way and right. you know you should you should sit in the middle of your couch and close your eyes and you should not have anything distracting you and you should listen on this type of gear and you should be listening to these kinds of recordings and blah 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 and you know my response to that is says who you know. Lay down your mm -hmm. lay down yeah. your CV and let me see if you actually have any real experience in 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 somehow determining what the aesthetics and, and of music should be. What I mean, what do you know? So I'm not talking about you. I'm not saying you, Dennis. I'm not saying what you, Dennis, know. I'm saying you, you know, the person who insists that other people listen to music his way. What what does he know? Mm -hmm. Lay down seriously. Lay down your CV, and you better impress me if you're going to be starting to tell people how to listen to music. 
to me, it seems to be, uh, look, in, in, in all of our audio testing, we have objective standards and we have subjective standards, right? Mm-hmm. We have our measurements and they give us an objective uh, idea of how a piece of equipment performs. And then we sit down and we listen and we go, oh, the mid-range was like, I don't know, Bavarian chocolate or some crap like that, right? Yeah. So, But I think a lot of this comes from a desire to take the subjective and give it an air of objectivity. Um, and I think that is really the root of this whole, you should use live music as a standard thing. I think it is an attempt to turn the subjective experience into something that argumentatively f- feels more objective. Yeah. I, I remember years ago, I read uh, a, a blog post from um, Sean Olive. Mm-hmm. We seem to discuss a lot on this podcast. We should have Well, he merits discussion. We should. We, he merits discussion. Yeah. Um, God, I wish I could remember the name of it. I'll have to look this up and I'll put it in the show notes, but it was something about why comparing recordings to live music is stupid or something like that. Mm-hmm. Sean probably put it a lot more delicately than that, but he was talking about sort of the, I'm pretty the sure. history. He's, 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 <laughs> yeah. he's Canadian and a scientist. So yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah. But he was talking about the history, the long history of live versus recording uh, tests, all the way going all the way back to Edison and Edison doing the whole thing of like realizing Tell people what they're going to hear and they'll hear it. But, but Sean, this amazingly long and, and fascinating deconstruction of why it's very nearly impossible to compare a recording to a live music experience. Unless, you know, I think, God, and it's been years since I read this. I should have read it before we did this. But, you know, he said, like, oh, look, if your live performance is outside and your speakers are set up outside, mm-hmm. maybe you could do some comparison that had merit, you know? But otherwise, it's just like, we don't know how to do this. There's like no scientific standard for comparing a recording to a live performance. And I wish more people would read that because it would do a lot to disabuse this stupid notion. Yeah. You know, I did it once though. Um, Cause for a, mm-hmm. for a soundstage review, I did God, like five, six years ago, there was a set of headphones that came out from audio quest called the Nighthawks. And the guy who designed them, Skylar gray, who wanted to work for sound United um, contended, you know, he said, look, my headphones, I mean, they were really dull sounding. And he said, nope, my headphones sound more like live music. And the only way I could think of to try it was to actually do some musical performances and listen to the performance and then put on the headphones and listen to not the recording of the performance, but the, you know, the mic feed of the record, the, uh, I can't remember how I can't remember how we did it, but I have you know I have a Earthworks M30 measurement microphone which is just dead flat, mm-hmm. and so I got our good friend Jeff Morrison to perform a song on I think he well he plays guitar yeah so it must have been guitar so he played guitar and you know played into the microphone and I think what we did is we recorded it and then you'd then he play it again. And we go to the recording and you go back and forth with the headphones, mm-hmm. something like that. But anyway, we found that Skylar Gray was kind of right and that most of the headphones that were out there sounded brighter than than real live music. And then I, I turned around and did the same thing for Jeff. I played ukulele and and I think I sang or something. And he did the same thing. And, and we both agreed that, yeah, the tonal balance of most headphones is pretty zippy compared to live music. So... I think that was a kind of a valid comparison. It was as valid as we could make it given our resources. But, mm. and I'm glad I did it because it made me realize like, 
well, yeah, it's, it's, this is a different thing. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I, I just, well, I think I, you've just underlined the important part though. This is a different thing, <laughs> you know, yeah, that's, live music yeah, sure. and recorded music. They, they, they serve very different purposes. I don't, uh, you know, one of my favorite uh, the, the live live bands have become, or at least sort of mainstream bands, have become so expensive that I don't see many of them anymore. I think the only mainstream artist that I actually will pay to go see in concert is Lyle Lovett because mm-hmm. he's still selling tickets for forty five dollars or something like that. But there's wow. this amazing local bands um, called the Black Jacket Symphony, mm-hmm. and there's like they have like I don't know. 110,000 members of the band but what they do is they're a cover band mm-hmm. and they cover albums so what they will do is they will say hey this tour we're doing Led Zeppelin Houses of the Holy or we're doing uh you know Pink Floyd Dark Side of the Moon and they will just find which members of their collective are best suited to performing that album mm-hmm. those vocals those instruments and they will just stand on stage and perform the entire album from beginning to end wow it is a fascinating experience and it is not like listening to the album because there is something to be said about being in a crowd of people if they yeah. behave people sharing that musical experience together and so look could I go home and hear a much better performed version of Dark Side of the Moon? Of course I could. But there's just there there is something about the live experience that really doesn't have anything to do with sound quality or anything yeah. like that. It is a communal experience. And I think your perception of sound quality gets thrown off. I don't know if you've ever I may be going into some deeply weird territory here. So no, I agree. I, I think I agree edit, with you. I think I agree with you. You want you when we are evaluating sound, one of the things I try to do is keep emotion out of it as much as possible. And mm-hmm. that is one of the reasons that I will never use the Beatles Here Comes the Sun in the course of a review as mm-hmm. a test as a demo track. It's literally impossible for me to listen to that song without getting goosebumps on my arm and even at times crying. And if I am that emotional, I am not in any state to evaluate performance. I'm sorry. I'm just not. I could be listening to that thing on, you know, those old crappy headphones that came with a Walkman and I would be moved to tears and I would be like, these sound amazing. So I I guess the point I'm trying to make is when you get into a concert hall and you're surrounded by people and you're feeding off of that energy and you've got the adrenaline and everybody's singing along, I'm sorry, your, your perception of sound has changed. And so to me, that's another thing that makes this whole live versus recorded sound thing really invalid they're so, different i just they're realized radically different you just you just enlightened me i just had a revelation oh. so like you see these oh. reviews i mean you see look we read reviews all the time and the writer's like oh the reproduction was just so outstanding i was moved to tears oh and you feel i have always felt like well the guy was really into it and it's kind of admirable and all that kind of thing. But it's actually kind of stupid, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's like you're not... I mean, I can be moved to tears by a $30 Bluetooth speaker if it's playing... Um, oh, what's a song that has that effect on me? Uh, I don't know. There, there are many. I just can't... Like, oh, you know, like Joni Mitchell. That Oh, yeah. Like, both Sides Now or something like that? that? Well, more like that one on that one on Court and Spark, which she's kind of like... You know, uh, you know, kind of going through like a one talking about a one night stand she had and how she's all messed up and mm. and her friends hate her now or something like that. But I think it's called 
down to you. Anyway, um, yeah, that's a really moving song to me, no matter what it's played on. And so it's like, yeah. that doesn't, as I keep saying, music transcends reproduction, okay? Mm-hmm. So the fact that you were moved to, you know, it's not like, you know, hooking up a different set of speaker cables is going to move you to tears, <laughs> unless you look at the bill for what you paid for the speaker cables. But... <laughs> So can we, you know what? I would like to, I would like to, I think Jim did a good job here. I'm glad he brought this topic up and I encourage people to go read it at stereophile.com. Can we move on? Shall we? Let's move on. Let's take a break. See you on the other side. I'm Brent Butterworth. And I am Dennis Berger. And in this segment, we are going to be talking about Doug's coverage of the Montreal Audio Fest 2022, which is, uh, I think, the the second audio show that he's done this year. And as you pointed out in the last episode that we discussed in uh, audio show coverage, Doug is just an absolute maniac for audio shows. So his coverage is always really exciting to read because you can just sense the excitement and coming off of his fingers. This is is someone writing about something for which he has the utmost power. So I love reading his show coverage. Um, but I think like like we did last time, what I wanted to do is just sort of each of us pick a product from his coverage that we wish we could have heard in person mm-hmm. and talk about it and talk about why. Um, do you want to do you want to kick that off or do you want me to? I will go ahead and kick it off because there's a speaker on, you know, I always look at Doug's coverage and 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 also whoever else is at the show with him. Usually there's a couple of people and see if they have speakers that I would like to have heard. And because you know, I'm always curious about speakers that are a little different. And he points out one here that um it is the 18 loudspeaker from Coherent Audio based in Hamilton, Ontario. Canada. It's 20,000 a pair and it's big. So these things have uh, an 18 inch woofer and inside that woofer in the center of it is a three inch compression driver serving as the tweeter that uh, well, the tweeter and the mid range really, because the 18 inch woofer crosses over to the compression driver at 500 Hertz. So this is actually somewhat like what you see JBL do with some of their big horn speakers where they just have a big giant woofer and it crosses over to the horn at, you know, 500, 800 Hertz, something like that. So mm-hmm. this thing, but you know, to marry, uh, an 18 inch driver with a tweeter or effectively is is a hard thing to do because for for a couple of different reasons one of them is you know the the as we've talked about before the wider the speaker the the, the greater the diameter of the speaker the narrower the dispersion and so a lot of times when you start to pump voices through a big woofer it starts to sound like this it has a real cupped hands sort of coloration mm-hmm. and so i just hate that hated it even before I knew what it was. But in this case, they're crossing it over really low at 500 hertz, which a compression driver like this can handle. And it's a it looks like it's a really lightweight, low mass 18 inch woofer, which means it's got like the little pleated surround on it instead of the big giant roll, you know, half roll surround that you see on most subwoofers, right? Mm-hmm. And I've found that some of these, and this is a, a, a type of driver that's more commonly used on musical instrument speakers than on uh, hi-fi speakers and 
I have found that these drivers can usually be crossed over kind of higher and they don't sound so bad with voices. And so the, co- the combination of the low crossover point, the construction of the driver, it makes me think this thing could work. And as Doug points out, the sensitivity of it is 102 decibels, which means you can get 102 decibels of sound, which is really loud from one watt of power. And that's kind of great. Now, from one meter away. From one meter away. Yeah. So I, there's the quote, uh, Doug has a good quote here. And he says, I'll be straight up and tell you that most of these way off the beaten path loudspeakers rarely <laughs> impress me, <laughs> which, yeah. which I could have written. I could have written that myself. I would have probably been a little snarkier. Um, but as a little, a little, but as I took a few moments to listen to the speakers in the packed room, I noted clarity combined with effortlessness that I know many people will like. So he actually recommends that people go check these things out. And I am definitely going, I don't know what the next audio show I'll go to, will be, but I am definitely going to seek these things out because, you know, as, as, as Doug kind of suggests, there's a lot of people that like unusual loudspeakers. Mm-hmm. And is it more fun to have an, a, a sort of exotic, unusual loudspeaker that might have some performance issues? Or is it more fun to have a complete by-the-book loudspeaker, you know, with a woofer and then a mid-range and then a tweeter that are all crossed over appropriately and engineered to be flat and all that kind of thing? Which one's more fun to have? I mean, you know which one's going to give you a more accurate reproduction of music. But which one do you want to own? It's like owning a, a Ducati motorcycle versus a Honda. Okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, an equivalent Honda will be much less expensive and will outperform the Ducati. But I'd probably rather have the Ducati just because it's cooler. Yeah. Well, if you say so. I say so. I don't know, man. And I'm right because I'm Brent Butterworth. <laughs> That's as valid a reason as I could have imagined. Did you have some speakers you wanted to talk about here? I did. I think at a glance, you would look at these speakers and say, oh, these are much more traditional because you you see them from a distance and Mm -hmm. it's a couple of mid-bass drivers. It's a tweeter. It's a rectilinear tower. But these are the Totem Acoustics Kin Play Towers. That's K-I-N-P-L-A-Y Tower. Um, These are a tower version of the Kin Play Monitor, which came out. Uh, oh gosh it was last year year before i can't remember when i think came it was out. more like three years ago oh, i saw okay okay look well i saw it at a trade show mm-hmm. and i haven't been to a other than like one headphone show i haven't been to an audio show in uh almost three years so oh god there you okay. go so but these are these are a new tower version what i like about these things is that they are powered um they're not active mm-hmm. but they are powered and basically all you really need to do is connect a source to these things and you've got a complete hi-fi system. There's a there's an analog input that I think you can have it be line level or phono, if I'm remembering correctly. Mm-hmm. These things also have Bluetooth connectivity, which is really awesome. But you've got the amplifier built into one speaker and then it has a, a speaker level output that goes to the other speaker. So mm-hmm. one of the speakers you have to plug into the wall, not both of them, as you often have to do with active speakers. I think what intrigues me the most about these is I firmly believe that speakers of this sort are the future of our hobby. 
I mean, if you really want to get technical about it, I think the future is active loudspeakers, not merely powered loudspeakers. But these certainly point in that direction. And I think what's great about it is they just they lower the barrier to entry. Mm-hmm. They increase the odds, I think, that you're going to be able to get somebody to invest in a hi-fi system. And to me, that's the most important thing, because I want more people and especially more young people experiencing music through truly great high fidelity sound systems. And I, and I think I think speakers like this are what's going to be necessary to make that happen. You don't have to have a big amp rack. You don't have to have a preamp. You don't have to have a DAC. You got a source yeah. or two. You got Bluetooth. You got speakers. What else do you need? And if these things sound good, <laughs> then I would love these. So I, I think. I, I so think, I'd love to hear them. I think what's really interesting about these is that most of the powered slash active speakers that you buy are very mainstream and very um, kind of a lot alike. And with these, you know, uh, Vince Brzezzi, who designs all the totem stuff, he's a little outside the mainstream. I mean, his speakers are, are, are generally very well reviewed. And you know, I've never heard one that sounded like really wacky or anything like that. They you know, sound good. And um, but, you know, he kind of designs each one by hand to have its own personality. And. You know, he'll tell you like, yeah, this speaker is a little more like this. This one's a little more like this. He doesn't go for like a house, that real sort of strict house sound like you might get with Revel where it's hard to tell the speakers apart. His speakers, you could tell them apart. And so you're getting something really special with this. I mean, yeah, you can go by, you know, I just, I just, uh, the guy from um, Triangle just email me that they have a new active speaker coming out and their you know bro3 speaker is like my favorite bookshelf speaker it's like 600 bucks and they came out with a power it's not a power version of that but it's a powered yeah it's a powered speaker design kind of along the same lines Mm. and i'm sure it's i'm not sure but i'm i suspect it's really good but it's going to be more of a a a straightforward by the book thing whereas this is going to have a little more character to the sound i expect i haven't heard them and and, you know there's certain there's a certain like like pride and ownership of having something that's special and it's made by this sort of wizardly guy have you ever met vince no i haven't he kind of looks wizardly (laughs) he's got like kind of (laughs) big kind of curly gray hair and he's tall guy and and he he kind of he has this sort of mystique about him and so I really think that it's great to see manufacturers who are not the super mainstream manufacturers starting to adopt these new technologies because, you know, honestly, this is the kind of system that I'd like to own for myself Mm -hmm. if I didn't, you know, if my living room wasn't constantly going through this constantly changing bunch of sound bars and subwoofers and surround sound speakers and Bluetooth speakers and all that stuff that I make most of my money reviewing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if I actually had time to listen to music for fun, which I kind of rarely do, I'd love a system like this. I think it's really cool. By the way, we're throwing out a lot of jargon here. Should we are. We, you think maybe for new people, discuss the difference between uh, powered and active speakers? We should. I, I think a lot of people don't necessarily understand the distinction. They don't. And in fact, I have forgotten the distinction until you reminded me of it right before, as we were talking before we did this. So when we say a powered speaker as opposed to an active speaker, so a powered speaker is simply a speaker that has an amplifier built into it. Um, and then after that amplifier, there is a you know a crossover that, mm-hmm. that basically high passes and low passes and sends each driver in the system the appropriate frequency range. By contrast, an 
active loudspeaker has an active crossover before the amplifiers. And then you've got independent amplifiers for the tweeter and the woofer and things like that. Mm -hmm. And it allows for, you know, a lot more in terms of DSP. You can definitely, you, you know, do things like limiters and on just the woofer, things like that. So you can, you can much more carefully control the performance of each driver. But that's what we mean when we say, is this powered or is this active? Like, what is the crossover like and where is it in the signal chain? Is it before the the amps or is it after? So, and it does make a difference. Yeah. So, so like with this totem speaker, for example, since it's powered and not active, I don't know. I mean, I, I imagine that Vince probably designed it just the way he designs a normal speaker. And then they added these amps. Now, the amps may have digital signal processing built into them. And he may be tweaking the speaker up a little bit with that. But when you have a fully active speaker, you can do the crossovers in the digital domain. You can get them a lot more precise. You can tune them to perfection. Then you can throw the EQ on top of it. And you can put limiters on both drivers and mm-hmm. you know, really make your drivers you know, potentially last longer. And you can also start to do a lot more crazy things. Like I saw a speaker a couple of years ago that had, you know, normally you know, you want to get the tweeter as close to the mid-range driver or the mid-woofer as you can so that they don't interfere with each other as much in the crossover region, right? Because when you have two drivers mm-hmm. putting out the same audio signal, they're going to interfere with each other and create you know, reinforcement and cancellation patterns called comb filter effects. All right. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> I said all that in one breath. Um, so <laughs> so in, in, in that case, you can do things like do really steep crossovers and you can actually have the tweeter like, like a foot away from the midwoof for if you for whatever reason you want to and you can actually make it work if you do like a like a ninth order crossover or something like that which is just which is both impractical from a cost standpoint with a with a standard passive crossover and also doesn't tend to sound very good you know digital crossovers can be really steep and still sound good Mm -hmm. whereas with analog passive crossovers not so much and it's also too expensive because you with you with a digital crossover the parts count is exactly the same no matter what order of the crossover whereas if you do an analog crossover you know passive crossover the parts count goes up with every order of the crossover so you know a first order crossover can be two parts second order crossover can be three parts you know, third order crossover, four parts, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And, and just the more complicated the crossover gets to be, the more possibility for design errors. Whereas if you do it in the digital domain, you just tune it up on the computer, run your measurements, tune it, measure, tune, measure, tune, measure. And you can finish the whole thing off in like an hour. <laughs> I've done it. <laughs> Went back in my consulting days. So let me ask you a question, Brent. Mm-hmm. I have heard a lot of audiophiles complain about powered and active speakers. Uh, and their main complaint seems to be, well, that takes choice away from me. I want to decide what amplifier I want to mate with my speakers. How would you respond to them? Totally valid. You know, if that's the way you... Okay want to do it uh i you know yeah you can't with these with these particular totems um you can't you can't change out the amps you can't really do anything to you know, you could change your source devices or whatever but you can't mm. really do anything with them other than just listen to them and enjoy them so to me that's kind of the appeal though the amplifier has been selected and designed 
to drive this speaker? <laughs> I mean, what, what more? I mean, assuming that it was designed competently, what better could you ask for? I mean, this is the perfect amp for the speaker, theoretically speaking. So, to me, it just—I don't know—it takes it takes fuss out of the equation. It does, but it's it's, a, it's pros and cons. You know, some people really want to fuss. Yeah. I mean, especially um, over you know in the Asian market, the the sort of you know in 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 the West, we put all of our stuff in a rack, and then we have our speakers in the normal place. In Asia, they tend to put it on like a coffee table in front of them because they like to mess mm. with it. And if you go in like uh, hi-fi stores in Korea, for example, there'll be all the components will be on the, on a table, like a, like a coffee table right there. And sometimes they'll, you know, a lot of them like to have like an EQ thing or something they can play around with. So it's, it's yeah. just different aesthetics. It's different ways of doing it. And frankly, I, th I think it's a totally valid concern. You want to have your own amp. You want to go get a tube amp, something like that. You know what? They don't make a, an, an active or powered speaker with a tube amp as of yet. But, <laughs> you know, hey, there's a, there's a great idea yeah. for somebody right there. There's there's how you can distinguish your active speakers to a tube amp in it. Um, I think Samsung kind of pretended to do that for a while, oh, didn't they? But that was phony. That, so Samsung did it in Samsung had a had a like a wireless speaker, like a Bluetooth and Wi-Fi speaker that actually had a couple tubes yeah. in it. And then they I think they had a soundbar that had a couple tubes in it too. And in that case, the tubes are only used and, and an HTIB. Yeah. So the tubes are only used for the preamp stage where they have, you know, some effect. Although I was told by someone at Samsung. I can't remember who that was, but hmm. <laughs> um, but I was told by someone formerly with Samsung. Don't worry, Samsung. It's not somebody that's there now. Um, that you could you could pull the tubes out of those things and they still work. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, that was yeah. all phony baloney. Uh, by the way, I should yeah, I should say I I was sort of splitting hairs here and saying I would prefer that these totem speakers were active instead of just powered, but. Mm -hmm. That that is that is me um, wanting to have my cake and eat it too. I think I I I'm just really really happy to see a company like Totem, and of course they've been doing it for a while with with their smaller monitor speakers, but with these big towers, putting out a product like this that is powered because I think this is the direction that things have to go if this hobby is going to remain vital and is going to attract new um, adherents. So. I, I I agree, and this is look. If I was going to get a new system, and you know, I'm getting to where you know I'm going to retire someday, and I may just decide like, yeah, I just want to have like a decent system and forget about all this stuff. Um, this is the kind of thing I want because it's easy to deal with, and and you know, honestly, most of my listening would be Bluetooth, and it's I basically use it like a giant, good sounding Bluetooth speaker. And what's wrong with that? Absolutely nothing in my book. Although I think. <laughs> I think, I think there might be a few listeners who are going to tell us to go straight to hell. So Too bad. I can listen to music however I want to listen to it. And if somebody doesn't like it, <laughs> again, lay down your CV. Explain to me yeah. why I should pay attention to you. Yeah. Well, you ready to wrap this thing up, Brent? I think I am ready. I think I'm prepared mentally to, to end this and, and move on. Yes. So You want to do some credits? I'll, I'd like to do some credits, yes. I think I would like to give credit to me for Brent Butterworth mm -hmm. for speaking on this 
and possibly doing mixing and mastering, but we haven't decided yet, and possibly doing editing. And what are you gonna What are you gonna do? Yeah, I think you're gonna do the editing. Besides commentary, what are you doing? I think I've done everything I'm gonna do. I I did the engineering and, and the recording side, and now I gotta go have surgery. So you're taking over from here. That'll be fun. And so. Everybody wish Dennis well. And the music will be, uh, we haven't chosen it yet, but I think it's very likely that I'll pull something from my rich archive of performances, perhaps even something from my number eight album on the RMR jazz chart, Take Two. I thought um, it was number seven. I think we're number eight. Okay. We're, we have the number, we, we're our, on the song chart, we are number one this week with a tune called Fandango. So you know what? I'm going to put a little clip of Fandango on there. Nice. So it'll be with, with which will be with my friend Ron Seiger. Should we just, are, are we done? Do we have anything, anybody else to credit? We should probably credit, you know, Soundstage. Yeah, we should say we're a production of the Soundstage Network, and everybody can check out all of our written work at soundstage.com. Yes. And now we should probably bid farewell. Let's do that. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. Adieu. Adieu.